Oh, hi. Hello. It's Dom. And along with my co-host, Amy, we are the hosts of Horror House, True Crime, and The Macabre. If, like us, you have a morbid curiosity with true crime, the paranormal, cults, and more, then our show may just satisfy your curiosities. We release episodes on Fridays and bonus episodes every other Wednesday. You can listen to us wherever you find your podcasts, and you can also find us on Instagram at horrorhouse underscore pod. So, all that's left to say is, until next time, my friends, stay spooky. Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is a true crime investigative podcast. We discuss cases regarding the assault, murder, sexual assault, or cases involving the abuse or abduction of adults or children. These topics can be very disturbing and a trigger to many individuals. So please listen accordingly. If you or someone you know is struggling or in crisis, Help is available. You can text, call, or chat 988. This is available 24-7. It is also available in multiple languages for anyone who needs mental health-related or suicide crisis support. It can connect you with trained crisis counselors. Also, if you are in Wichita, there is a local crisis center. Call 316-660-7500. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog mom, baker, true crime podcast maker. And as you guys may have noticed as you're listening to my podcast, yes, I mostly focus on crimes that happen in Kansas, but I'm kind of obsessed with Oklahoma. I'm obsessed with Oklahoma not only because my favorite brother owns a business there. And by the way, if you haven't checked out the Taco Tico in Claremore, Oklahoma, even if you live in Kansas, hell, I don't care where you live, you need to make a drive to that Taco Tico. If you think all Taco Ticos taste the same, you're wrong. It's the best one. Because... He does his food special. It's not like everyone else. And also, he loves dogs. He does special things for dogs. If you thought I'm over the top with dogs, he taught me to be as crazy about dogs. So he's even worse than I am. Bet you didn't think that was possible. But not only that, I, as you guys have also may have known, I have another brother in Oklahoma one I am not close to, and one who is there for different reasons, which we've, I believe, may have talked about before. But also, forget Florida Man. Have you guys heard some of the crazy cases that come out of Oklahoma? But not only that, how crappy some of the ways that law enforcement has handled these cases. It's absolutely mind-blowing and insane. No wonder the Oklahoma residents don't trust their own law enforcement and get so angry. Let's talk about the case of Kendra Batello. 
I did a podcast on her and the fact that she's been missing. Shortly after, she called out the fact that her boyfriend was abusing her. And there was a lot of hinky things that her boyfriend has done since. But law enforcement has done nothing for her case. The Enid, Oklahoma Police Department, the family has tried talking to them repeatedly. And the family has gotten nowhere. I want to do something special for her case. But there's just so little information. And I've had a really hard time getting anywhere. Obviously, being in Kansas and there in Oklahoma, it's been really hard to get somewhere with her case. If there is somebody in the Oklahoma area who can help us out, that would be incredible. But Kendra Botello is a missing Indigenous woman, and her case needs focus. It needs focus from the community. But as you guys may have seen, there has been another absolutely insane case that has been coming out of Henrietta, Oklahoma. But it's insane, and it reminded me of the case of Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman. Not just because it happened around a sleepover, but also because of what happened with law enforcement. Now, we are still really working hard with investigating and going through information that is coming out on this case, and so we will do that. And I generally do not like putting out information on an ongoing investigation. But there are a few things I would like to share on this case. So if you guys will indulge me, let's talk about the murders of Loria Bible and Ashley Freeman first and how they relate a little bit to this case. Not saying that those persons were involved, just how some of the investigation mirrors that. Now, for those of you who are unaware, Loria Jolene Bible and Ashley Renee Freeman. Now, Loria Bible, she was born April 18, 1983. And Ashley Renee Freeman, she was born December 29, 1983. They're both teenagers and they disappeared the evening of December 29th in the early morning hours of December 30th of 1999 from the Freeman's home in Welch, Oklahoma. Now, on December 29th, 1999, their, Loria and Ashley were two high school friends, and they spent the evening together celebrating um, her six, Freeman's 16th birthday. Bible had received permission from her parents to spend the night at Freeman's home. Now, earlier that day, the girls had spent time at a local pizzeria with Freeman's mother, Kathy. At approximately 5.30 a.m., though, on December 30, 1999, a caller calls 911 and reports that the Freeman home is engulfed. And I mean engulfed in flames. And, of course, law enforcement and everybody shows up. And um, Bible's brother calls the mom and is like, well, what do you want to do? She's like, well, get your butt over there and see if she's okay. Because 
Bible's car was parked in the driveway with her keys in the ignition. And having been to the Freeman's house before, Loreen, the mom, also explained the layout of the home to the deputy. I mean, she's going through what's going on, trying to figure out where her daughter is. And she also included where the parents' bedroom was and the bedroom that the girls' bedroom should be in. And she asked them, how bad is it and have they found anybody? Well, the medical examiner, Donna Warren, she informed her that they had found a body in the home's front room. The body was that of a woman who had given birth to children. They were able to determine that. And this woman wore a wedding ring. They will determine this is Kathy Freeman. Also at the scene, the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation, the OSBI, Agent Steve Nutter, Under Sheriff Mark Hayes, Craig County deputies, firefighters, and other officials, they searched through the rubble for the two girls and the father, Danny Freeman. Now, Loria's, Danny's, and Kathy's cars, again, they're all in the driveway, keys in the ignition. Now, once they arrived at the Freeman's property, Jay and Lorene, they waited. They have to wait with the rest of the really curious bystanders. All the looky-loos, they're having to wait with them. And they're waiting to find out if their daughter is alive or dead. And at one point, Lorene looked at the investigator and asked, Are you positive that there are no bodies in that fire? The investigator comes back and says... We are a hundred percent again. We we are a hundred percent sure there are no other bodies in the fire. Remember that. A hundred percent sure. Hundred percent. No other bodies in the fire. So that first day it was believed Kathy had died in the fire and they're unaware if she was shot in the head and killed before the home was burned to the ground or what exactly. Working theory is she was killed and dad took off with the kids or somebody was kidnapped or something like that went on. So until nightfall, the authorities are searching the property for clues of Danny and the girls, but they have no luck. Nutter, remember Nutter, he is OSBI. He releases the scene to Danny Freeman's stepbrother, Dwayne Vansell. Now, there are no other remains found. Law enforcement cleared the scene with a working theory. Danny Freeman kills his wife, and he flees with Ashley and Loria. That's their theory. But, yeah. Theories many times are proven wrong. So tips start flooding in of reported sightings because you put that theory out there and everybody's going to start seeing them. So all these sightings of Danny and the girls are flooding in. But instead of actively searching for the girls, investigators opted to question friends and family that night. And when the sun rose, investigators said they would then go follow up on the leads. Freemans, they're no strangers to law enforcement. It was alleged that Danny had dabbled in the drug business, and it was speculated that, you know, his run-ins with the law weren't really good ones. So that probably created a little bit of a bias on the law enforcement 
as they were investigating this case. Additionally, the story of Danny and Kathy's son, Shane, was known among law enforcement. He had his own run-ins with the law, and also he had a brief crime spree. Shane developed a reputation of his own in the area on January 8th of 1999. Law enforcement had killed Shane in what was ruled a justified homicide. In the years following, some of the family and friends disagreed with the law enforcement's version of events. And so there had been some court dealings going back and forth. And it's believed that law enforcement probably didn't do due diligence during their investigation due to some biases and their own feelings that they had going into that investigation. Now, law enforcement are people, but when there's an investigation, you have to check all of that and leave that shit in a box at the door and go in and do your job. This led to frustration from family members who wondered what was being done to find the girls. The next day, after being questioned by police, Jay and Lorraine Bible, they decide to go to the crime scene and they're going to search for clues themselves because they want to know where their daughter is. And they knew the, they needed to start there. That's where you need to go to start there to start finding the answers. The scene had been cleared and it wasn't even blocked off with crime scene tape anymore. I mean, it was completely open that anybody could walk through it. All that remained were piles of rubble under the morning sun and the smell of smoke hanging in the air. Well, moments after that, they get there and they start searching through the rubble and the ash and they're like, okay, let's see if we can find any answers to where our child might be. But Jay, Jay makes a really big discovery of where his daughter might be because covered in shoe prints, after having been stepped all over the day before, there's another body in the rubble. Says, um, well, you don't have to worry about where Danny is because he's laying right here. Jay and Lorene had discovered Danny's body in the pile of rubble. He also had a gunshot wound to the head. They weren't able to get any signal on the Freeman's property. Lorene went down the road and called 911. She identified herself and told the investigators to send OSBI and the deputies back to the Freeman property because, guess what? We found another body. The woman on the other end of the line asked Lorraine to repeat herself. And I can just imagine, excuse me, you found what? She said, there was another body in that fire that you guys happened to have missed. Lorraine hung up and returned to the property. A deputy was sent to the scene where Lorene and Jay were waiting, and sure enough, they showed the deputy that, hey, guess what you missed? You missed a body. I, I, I honestly don't understand how that's something you missed, but they missed it. And, um, yeah. The reason for the vagueness, possibly, was to get fellow officials and investigators back to the scene without tipping off the media or curious members of the community who were listening to the scanners, so they were being kind of vague as they were trying to call everybody else out. Additionally, the crime scene had already been cleared. It was now contaminated. Even further, just to make things worse, 
in an attempt to regain control of the crime scene? Authorities tried to get Lorraine and Jay to go back down the road away from the scene, but Lorraine was like, fuck this, pardon my language, but as a parent, I would be like, no, you guys have screwed up enough. How do I know you haven't missed my child somewhere in this? So Lorraine tells them, and I applaud her. This is no longer your scene. It's ours. You turned the scene over to family last night. Investigators, alongside what would later be called the Bible Bureau of Investigation, you go, Bible family, were now searching for two individuals, Ashley and Loria. In the following days, tips were coming and that would prompt investigations of bodies of water, mine shafts, and the case was even shown on America's Most Wanted. Now, while coming the property, private investigator Tom Pryor and his friend, and a, uh, his friend was also a bounty hunter, Joe Dugan, they came across a woman's car. The family, I mean, they're being proactive. So they also get a private investigator, private investigator Tom Pryor. And Tom Pryor has a friend, bounty hunter Joe Dugan. And they come across a woman's car insurance verification card. Not wanting to cause any trouble, Pryor tries to hand the card over to law enforcement. But, unfortunately, the card was just brushed aside. Now, in the years to come, this card that he kept trying to give to law enforcement, this would end up breaking the case wide open. The verification card belonged to a woman who was later mentioned in affidavit reports filed by Gary Stansell. In the affidavit, less than a week after the fire on January 3rd, 2000, the Federal Bureau of Investigation interviewed a woman who was the then girlfriend of a man named Phil Welch. Warren Phil Welch was known to be dangerous and evil to his core. Now, he had two followers, David Pennington, and I'm sure you've heard of him a lot in the news by now, Ronnie Busick. Killers were identified. Private investigator Tom Pryor told Stansell and Ferrari that after he discovered the insurance verification card, law enforcement hadn't taken possession of it. So he and Joe Dugan tracked down the car and that with the insurance card belonged to it, it led them to a salvage yard and with permission, they went through the vehicle. Now, shortly after Pryor stated that, he and his findings to law enforcement, however, he was told that the vehicle had gone through too many hands to be processed for evidence. However, as it stated in the affidavit, Pryor stopped investigating and the Freeman case and being told by law enforcement personnel that he was interfering and his private investigator license would be canceled if he didn't cease his investigation. There is a lot more to the Luria Bible and Ashley Freeman case. I don't, this is primarily focusing on the case in Henrietta, but I wanted to show you, this is what first really showed me how screwed up the Oklahoma investigation is. There is an amazing podcast out there, Sirens Podcast, 
where they are doing amazing work about this case. They go into this case in depth and they are doing everything they can to stop Busick from getting out of jail. So I really recommend you guys go and follow that to get more information on this case and to see what else you can do to help prevent him from being released back out into the community. This Facebook message arrives on a Sunday night. Jesse McFadden writes that he was doing well at a marketing job and had made a great life just like I promised I would do with you. Now it's all gone, he said in his message, which he sent with a photo of himself staring directly, menacingly, at the camera. I told you I wouldn't go back. This is all on you for continuing this. Hours later, authorities found the bodies of McFadden, his wife, her three teenage children, and two other teens who were at the McFadden home for a sleepover. They, the police chief leading the investigation into the killings in rural Oklahoma, said that McFadden, a convicted rapist who spent nearly 17 years in prison before his 2020 release, had likely shot all six in the head before killing himself. Now, they've also went on to say that they believe where he has ended up putting the bodies was staged. Now, this message we had just read, it was reported by a Fo an Oklahoma Fox affiliate, and it was sent to a woman who was set to testify against McFadden in a child sex abuse trial that was scheduled to begin the same day the bodies were found. The woman's name is Caitlin Babb. She's 23 years old. She provided the messages to NBC News. It was sent to her from a private account with the name Holidays. And the police chief leading the investigation just outside of Henrietta, Oklahoma, his name is Joe Prince, and he had reviewed the message, and he wasn't sure if it was sent before or after the killings. In an email, Prentice said he wasn't, he just wasn't willing to read too much into it. It seemed to me, he stated, he was blaming her for his situation his situation of continuing the criminal case against him. In an interview with Fox News, Babb provided a harrowing account of how McFadden allegedly lured her into a predatory relationship as a teenager, convincing her from a prison cell. And he convinced her that they had a future together. And then he started to threaten her when the relationship was revealed. When the prison decided to file charges on him, he began threatening her. She said that she read the message as McFadden blaming her for the killings because she refused to back down from the child pornography 
and soliciting sexual conduct communication with a minor charges. She says that she thought she was protecting people. She thought she was going to keep him from hurting anyone else. She added that he took away her innocence, her childhood, and she didn't want him to do that to anyone ever again. Instead, the worst possible scenario played out. She'll never get to see justice, and three families are grieving the lives of Ivy Webster, 14, Brittany Brewer, 15, Michael Mayo, 15, Tiffany Guess, 13, Riley Allen, 17. Then there is Holly McFadden, 35. News, are, news is coming out that she possibly had a hand in what was going on. That has not been substantiated yet. Bab has said the failure of prosecutors to ever try the case because the case was filed in 2017 and it was hampered by what she described as years of delays that that signaled a miscarriage in the state's justice system. They could have prevented these deaths, she said. This never should have happened. I don't know how many times I told them. He's a dangerous man. You're putting little girls in danger. I don't know how many times I screamed at the top of my lungs for someone to care and now look what happened. This again is why so many people in Oklahoma right now are pissed as hell. 2017, she was screaming at them. A dangerous man is around children and you are not stopping them. Now, Muskogee County District Attorney Larry Edwards, he didn't respond to requests for comment. When you go back and look, you can see that a trial had been set over the years and delayed and set and delayed and set and delayed, including an earlier prosecutor leaving the job and another one breaking her foot the day before trial. So there were things that kept happening and the trial kept getting delayed. And this guy was still out there. Now, Bab is the manager for a health insurance company in Texas, and she met McFadden by accident in 2015 after moving to Oklahoma from Texas to live with her grandparents. She had a new phone number and one night got a message from McFadden. He was trying to reach the person who had the number previously, and she was a transplant with no friends in a new town. She found a person who seemed friendly and genuinely interested in her. He didn't disclose that he was in prison until much later, and he described his rape conviction as what they usually say, it was just a misunderstanding. Now, McFadden asked for a proof of her age, so she provided him with an image of her learner's permit. And that's when things quickly turned sexual. The texts, letters, and phone, and video calls, they lasted for about a year and a half. 
even after her grandparents discovered a letter in her bedroom and reported it to the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. Charges against McFadden were filed September 29, 2017. Court records show this. A lawyer for McFadden, Rex Starr, he won't respond to the comments for requests for comments either. Now, after the phone was confiscated, McFadden continued to call bad. And you know how that goes, the grooming and the training. I mean, you just, you give into what his demands are. Even from prison, people need to understand that they can manipulate them. He tried to get her to coerce her to drop the case. But then he began threatening her. And that's when it all started to turn for her at that point. Now, Bab, she had dropped out of high school, left her grandparents home for Texas, and she slowly stopped responding to McFadden's calls. And she ended up blocking his number and told the district attorney, okay, you know what? That's it. She found her strength and she decided to testify against him. Now, initially, she was confused about what McFadden's message meant when he sent it to her. And she sent it to the attorney. And he said, well, he must not really care anymore um, because by contacting her, he was violating the terms of his bail. So, okay, that must mean they're going to pick him up and arrest him and everybody's safe and secure, right? No. The next morning, Bab got a call from the prosecutor alerting her to another delay in the case. McFadden's lawyer had asked for a continuance over an issue related to McFadden's phone. A half hour later, Bab said, the prosecutor called and told her of a missing persons notice about McFadden, Brittany Brewer and Ivy Webster. Bab said she immediately packed a bag and rented an Airbnb 45 minutes away. She was terrified that he was coming for her. In the days since the bodies were discovered, she's experienced an onslaught of emotions, guilt, anger, frustration, and grief. She's been through the shame and humiliation, and it's like all of the years are just coming back to her but she's wanting to be heard. She's not wanting to be a victim. She's wanting people to hear and to understand that he should have been put away. She spoke out. She was doing her job. The state of Oklahoma was not doing theirs. She's resilient and she's not backing down. The state of Oklahoma should have been doing their job. She did the hardest job at all. She did the hardest job of all. She got the strength to get up and stand up against him. And the state of Oklahoma did not help her and did not help his victims. Following this case in Henrietta, which is a city in Okmulgee County, which is about an hour south of Tulsa and about 90 minutes east of Oklahoma City. And again, this is the case of Jesse McFadden. And I don't want to go into it too deeply. 
But one of the things that gets me is I see so many people just jumping on this case because it's sensationalistic and that type of thing. But one of the things I've seen is that they believe that there might be more bodies there. They believe, I, I definitely believe there are more victims because of the possibility of child pornography and what he had done to Bab. And, and so that's why we haven't jumped out here to say too much. But I do want to let people know this is a case that we are working on and seeing how many other connections because somebody like this, this is a true serial sexual predator. And there were so many balls dropped in the state of Oklahoma. And I am so sorry for all of the families and all of the victims in this case. And my heart reaches out to all of you every time I see you on the news every time I see you have to talk and deal with this. My heart bleeds for each and every one of you. He should have been stopped the first time many times ago, but if anything, the young woman who had been willing to come forward and testify, she gave the Oklahoma courts everything to stop him in 2017 and there was no reason i'm sorry for a broken foot but there is no reason i have flipping broke my foot and trust me i've been at work there is no reason to not have stopped him but let's get into the case Jesse McFadden was convicted of first-degree rape in 2003 in Pittsburgh County and was sentenced to 20 years in prison. He was released from prison in 2020 after serving 17 years. I also want to apologize when you hear some issues. I did have a procedure a few days ago, so I am having a few issues, but I did want to get some podcasts out. So I apologize if there are some issues as I am speaking. State statute dictates ODOC based on an inmate's incarceration on a level system that determines custody level. This is why I want to get into this. This is something that bothers me also in regards to my brother's case. Job status, program status, privileges, the level system encompasses multiple criteria including behavior, attitude, program, education assignments, general hygiene, Inmates begin um, earning credits upon reception. However, for crimes with an 85% minimum time served, those credits are banked and not applied until the 85% is reached. Inmate Jesse McFadden was sentenced to 20 years in 2003 and was received into ODOC custody in January 2004. Per state statute for his conviction, McFadden had to serve no less than 85% of his sentence, which is a minimum of 17 years. Inmates are given credit for time served within county jails, which in his case was 76 days, moving his release date to October 30th, 2020. Let's take into effect that while he was in prison, 
he also did another offense. They let him out, even though he made an offense while he was in jail. He did crime, y'all, <laughs> to give us a little Jerry from Tales from the Gas Station. While McFadden was still in prison serving time for his rape conviction, he was charged in 2017 for allegedly using the contraband cell phone to send nudes and have sexual conversations with a minor, often referring to as, quote-unquote, sexting. McFadden was alleged on a jury trial on Monday for Muskogee County on those allegations. Do you see what I'm saying? Rather than letting him out, if he's caught for doing something else in jail, why did they not just keep him there? Why let him out early? You're surely not letting him out for good behavior because he didn't do good behavior. You're just letting him out because you're saying, well, we're giving him credits. No, just don't let him out. This is what I'm not understanding. Somebody on this board here with the ODOC, explain to me why you let him out. Why did you let this serial sexual sadist and now killer, why did you let him out? The Department of Corrections said in its allegations that McFadden was penalized for the sexting allegations while he was in prison. So follow me on this. McFadden was a level four inmate for most of his incarceration. However, he was assigned to level one in January 2017 following his misconduct, occurring in December 2016 for possessing a contraband cell phone. He returned to level four through the proper steps in June of 2017, through the end of his incarceration when McFadden was really, when he reached his 85% date. His banked credits were applied when he was released. Okay. Here's my problem. This is a sexual predator. A sexual predator. And this is the same thing we're fighting for. And if you go back and listen to my episode about Layla's Law. Or Lila's Law. Sorry, Lila's Law. I'm telling you, I'm having a really hard time talking, guys. Um, we are allowing these sexual predators to continue to do their same actions. So we can blame the sexual predators up to a point, but then we have to blame the system for continuously enabling these predators to go back out into the community to commit the same crimes. You're basically allowing people to be victims. You're, you're, you're giving them the opportunity to victimize others. Now, the trial for the alleged sexting was initially slated to begin much earlier, but the unexpected delays over the years, including the death of McFadden's attorney, I get that, the departure of the first prosecutor on the case, an injury, broken foot, and the pandemic, and this excuses that we keep getting on the pandemic, all of these excuses, I, I see all of these excuses, but here's one tiny way to resolve all of these excuses the state of Oklahoma has. He never should have been out of flipping jail. You should have never let him out early. 
He should have never had the opportunity to be elderly, and he should have stayed there up until the correct date because of the crime that he committed over the sexting. You had the contraband. You saw the evidence on the phone. There are no ifs, ands, buts, candies, or coconuts. He shouldn't have been out. End of story. They can sit and try to put this any way they want. They can try to pretty it up any way they want to pretty it up. End of story is the state of Oklahoma, the ODOC, screwed up and people died. And you basically gave him the weapon and the opportunity. Now, when I look at the law, due to the nature of his previous crime, he should have at least been held without bond until he went to trial for the sexting case. If anything else, he should have been incarcerated without bond due to the nature of his previous crime. Now, the district attorney can call in and ask a judge, and this is from an article, I'll have to look back and see where the article came from, but... The district attorney can call in and ask the judge, hey, look, this guy's a danger. He's a danger to everyone he comes in contact with. We don't want him outside the prison. We don't want him out on the streets. We want you to hold him without bond. So why did they release him when they already had him in custody? He had already committed a crime against a child while he was in prison. So I don't understand why you would let him out. And don't tell me COVID. Don't tell me COVID. You have the opportunity to let out some people who don't, who aren't sexual offenders. Now, through sentencing from the court, McFadden was to register as a sex offender. The Department of Corrections said it in a statement. He was given no probation. However, because he was a lifetime registrant, he had to check in every 90 days with the sheriff's office. He was compliant with the stipulation. Registered sex offenders are allowed to live with their own children and stepchildren as long as they are not a victim of the offender. However, they are supposed to notify the Oklahoma Department of Human Services if they do. Sex offenders are not required to notify neighbors of their registration status. That is another thing I want to call bullshit on and needs to change. I think that is completely wrong and I think that as a whole, as a law, needs to change. Authorities began a search after McFadden had failed to appear at his long-delayed jury trial on Monday in Muskogee County. And that's another thing that ticks me off. Because in the news, they try to say, well, when the girls went missing. No, you didn't start searching for anything until McFadden didn't show up for trial. Now, that's when his body was discovered along with his wife, her son, and daughters. The other two teens who were visiting the family over the weekend as well. 
Other records state it was the search for the girls that led law enforcement to the home, but I don't really believe it. I believe, oops, we screwed up. We better figure this out. Now, on Monday, May 1st, law enforcement found the seven bodies on the property on Holly Road in Henrietta. Earlier in the day, an endangered missing person advisory was issued by authorities for 14-year-old Ivy Webster and 16-year-old Brittany Brewster. But it was a horrible scene that greeted Oklahoma law enforcement officials on the rural property of the convicted sex offender. Now, as I had said, law enforcement is able to state that the scene pretty much looks staged. And then the other problem is, is that when they released the property and family had decided to go in and what law enforcement needs to remember anymore these days is everything. Everybody records everything. So as happens, Family goes in, they're videotaping their walkthrough, and they see a bunch of things that they're like, why did law enforcement not take this in for evidence? And there are some things that I would question. Now, one thing we do need to remember, what we, what some people as a civilian might see as evidence it might be something that law enforcement has already looked at, taken, and said, or taken pictures of, and they're like, okay, I, law enforcement doesn't have room in their evidence room for every single thing in the house. So they are probably going to take pictures, they're going to dust it, they're going to do everything, but they aren't going to take every little piece of everything in for evidence. Now, however... From some of the things that sounds like were left behind, it definitely sounds like there are some big chunks of evidence that were more than likely needed to be procured. As you are, and again, this takes me back to the earlier case we had discussed where they stumbled upon a body. And that tells you why so many people are frustrated with the Oklahoma law enforcement. There's so many things in this that you're just like, what the frick, Oklahoma? Come on. But, I mean, this family is hurting. And they're not getting the answers from their own legislatures and their own law enforcement. Everybody is so busy wanting to make sure that they look tough and that they look like they know what they're doing, that they're forgetting the angle of compassion. And some, they, that just needs to be reminded and remembered as we are going through this case. Let's not forget the angle of compassion as we're dealing with families and everyone. And I just want to make sure we all remember that. And one other thing, I did see that the parents are reportedly planned to lobby for stricter legislation related to sex offenders and sex offender notification. None of them had any idea of McFadden's past and received little additional information from the authorities. According to NBC News, Okmulgee County, uh, the marriage records revealed Holly Guess had just recently married Jesse L. McFadden in 2022. However, again, as we've been researching information, 
there has been some things that come out that she may have been aware of things and may have actually been involved with it. As we said, we've just been researching and seeing more and more information in this case. And as we said earlier, we are not deep diving into this case because we are going through and, you know, we're not investigating the crime. We are just investigating the information coming out in this case before we do a proper podcast on this case. This podcast was more of a discussion as to explaining we understand why the people of Oklahoma are so frustrated with the way and the reason things go in Oklahoma. And to kind of give people who don't live in Oklahoma a background of why people in Oklahoma feel the way they do. And we wanted to go from that. This investigation is unfolding. It is horrific and horrible. I just want to remind other podcasters or other people covering the case, when you are posting videos, when you are posting different things about it, or just whenever you are posting any of them, Again, this is just, you know, with my 20 years of experience, with just, you know, my own um, feelings as somebody going through uh, from the victim side of it, I just want to remind all of you to go through things. Just remember your intent as you are posting on social media as you are posting um, your TikToks, as you are posting your podcast, don't forget compassion. That has been something. It, I don't know if it's the things that different people who've started following me or if, I mean, there was an improvement, but then I've kind of noticed a backsliding. I know with the, oh, what's his name, Koberger or whatever. There seemed to have been a backslide and then there was improvement. And then I just noticed recently with this case, it almost seems like there's a backslide again. And number one, um, True Crime Declassified did an amazing job of reminding people that young kids, young people can just click on these people who are doing makeup tutorials and talking about gruesome, horrible things while they're doing it. A young child could click on that if you don't have a disclaimer or anything like that. And just remember, if you are a parent yourself, would you want your eight-year-old listening to something like that? So please be aware. Number two, Always remember anything that you're putting out there, anything that you do, would you want the victim's family to see what you're saying or what you're putting out there? Just always be cognizant of that. Always remember that. Just, it's very frustrating to me sometimes when I see people glamoring, glamorizing something that is so tragic and so horrible. Um, just remember, these cases are not about us. These cases are always about the victims and about their families. And as much as we become frustrated about, as I am about this case, 
and we want to help and we want to do the right thing. We always have to remember whenever we do a podcast, whenever we post something on social media, um, we need to remember what our intent is for it. Um, what is our intention of why we are doing it? Why we do our podcast, why we do our social media at Crime Scenes and Cupcakes is, I will be very honest, is, you know, as I've stated in the past, is we do it because I want to bring awareness to my friend, Krista Martin, who was murdered on October 1st of 1989. And I want to bring awareness to her case. I'm hoping if somebody somewhere, it triggers a memory, it triggers something. And also it brings more attention with the Wichita Police Department. And hopefully we'll get her case solved. We know that these cold cases, the more you talk about them, the more you bring attention to them, it increases the possibility that these cases will be solved. Also, in relation to the Mary Krepper case, I do firmly believe that I believe that there was a serial, I don't want to say serial murder. Um, I'm not sure if the killing part was incidental, but I believe there was a serial abductor at that time where a man was abducting women from grocery stores. And in the 70s, there was a lot of women who were being abducted and a lot of women who were being killed and dumped in ditches, in fields, in those types of things. And it is something that I believe it's something that we've worked on. I actually have several people who have been working with me and tracing that. And it's, it's become a passion project of ours. I do believe that Lieutenant Dorowski, nothing against him. I believe he had a lot on his plate with BTK. And he was also working the poet. And unfortunately, I think he became overly friendly with Ruth Finley and her husband in the poet case. And if you go back to our archives, you can listen to that. I think... Uh, the Chief of Police, Lemonian, I think he did an amazing job on that case. I know he was recently honored um, for a different award, but I think he did an amazing job on that case. I 100% agree with him on that case because it turned out there was no poet. It was Ruth Finley trying to get attention, but I think Lieutenant Jarowski was so involved with being a friend to her and her husband and he was so focused on finding that serial killer the poet that he did not give the case of mary krepper the attention that it deserved and he thought possibly it was a part of the poet case that didn't even exist because it was Ruth Finley, so please go back and check out that case in the archives and check out the Mary Krepper case. But I think the Mary Krepper case could be related to the Gail Sorensen case and several other cases. And um, I have a few of my listeners who actually send me messages and we are trying to relate and track this down to several other unsolved cases of women who have been abducted. The day Mary Krepper was abducted, this man tried to abduct several other women and, and he drove a brown maverick. So those are my intent of my podcast. 
I do have another intent of my podcast. I love showcasing my dogs. So that's a very self-involved intent. Um, any funds that are made on our podcast go into an account where we are trying to build up enough money to have a billboard for the missing here in Wichita, Kansas that we are working on funding. So that's something we are doing. So those are our intents. That is our mission. That is our mission here at Crime Scene and Cupcakes. Another thing that we have brought up that is on our social media is whether or not we should change our name. I would really be interested in you guys weighing in on this. Should we continue to be Crime Scene and Cupcakes? Or, sorry, it is actually storming here, if you can hear that in the background. So, we are wondering, should we stick with Crime Scene and Cupcakes? Or, one of the other jokes is that I get up every morning and I begin working on this, as I've done throughout my career for over 20 years. And we thought about changing it to Killers for Breakfast because instead of breakfast, this is what I do. I get up and I begin researching and working and trying to find the answer on Mary Krupper's case, Krista's case, Gail Sorensen's case, Fasika Tadell, and so many others. So I'd love to hear you guys wave in on that one. Should we change our name? So. Thank you guys so much for listening. Thank you for spending Mother's Day with me. I hope you have a happy one. Stay safe.